Welcome to Take My Advice with me, Ollie Henderson, and thanks again for joining me. And thanks to everybody who listened and subscribed to the first two episodes of this new podcast, which had Christopher Lockhead and Kath Bishop on. I am blown away, really, by the number of people who have downloaded the show and given their feedback. And in short, aside from the slightly ropey audio on my end and nondescript logo, it's been overwhelmingly positive which is fantastic i've already sorted out the artwork and i'm working on the audio which should get better every week although you'll notice in today's recording that about halfway through i lost internet connection and it took me a few minutes to get back online but it doesn't negatively impact on what was a fascinating conversation with my guest alex sujung kim pang Anyone who reads my newsletter will know I'm a bit obsessed with the way that we use our time and getting the right balance between having focused time and being flexible. And you'll probably understand, therefore, why I am so interested in Alex's ideas. He's the author of multiple books, the most recent of which is Shorter, which we spend most of the show talking about. But his previous book was called Rest, and it was a study on the benefits of incorporating deliberate rest and recovery into our lives. Shorter is an exploration into how businesses around the world have switched to either shorter days or shorter weeks and how this has improved everything from work-life balance to profitability. Now along the way we talk about the scourge of meetings, how achieving a flow state can add value to us individually and collectively and the potential impact on AI to the future of work. I'm sure you'll enjoy our chat as much as I did. Before we start, as ever, if you haven't already subscribed to Take My Advice, please do so. And also check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, which I'll link to in the show notes. Enjoy. Alex, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. It's good to be with you. Where are you joining us from today? I'm in Menlo Park, which is in the California Bay Area, midway between San Francisco and San Jose. Alex, I'm a big fan of your books, Rest and Shorter, which came out earlier this year. Uh, it came out prior to what turned out to be a tumultuous year. And certainly the themes in that book really resonated with me when I read it. I think, though, that some of the themes are even truer now than they were before. I was interested today to, to explore some of the ideas in the book and whether there's any approaches which you feel like we need to adapt. And now things are looking a little bit different in people's work lives. So just to start, perhaps you could talk us through the principles behind Shorter, why you decided to write the book. Sure. So Shorter is about companies that have shortened their working hours, moved to four-day weeks or six-hour days or some other kind of permanently shortened work week without cutting salaries and without reducing productivity or, or customer access or profitability. And I got interested in this after my previous book, Rest, and in there, I talked about the role that rest and leisure plays in the lives of really creative people. But I felt like after that project, one of the things that still needed to be addressed was, okay, so how do people who are in high stress, demanding jobs, you know, in occupations where the lines between sort of work and non-work are consciously blurred, how do those people make room for more rest in their lives? And it felt to me like, most of the time we talk about this stuff as very much like individual issues, like sort of personal, almost like personal moral failings. If you fail to be both the ideal worker and the ideal parent, that's all on you, right? Or if your employer or if neoliberal capitalism, what have you, have nothing to do with that. And it struck me that was, you know, that we really needed to rethink that. 
that the fact that so many of us have challenges with overwork, with work-life balance, with being good parents and being good workers, the ubiquity of this of these problems suggests that they're actually we ought to pursue kind of collective and structural solutions rather than just individual ones. And that started me looking for companies that were doing this. And what I found were a whole host of companies all over the world in a bunch of industries that have moved to permanently shorten their working hours and have seen really great results, not just for individual workers, but for the company as a whole. And it struck me that this was a story that was really worth telling, that had a lot to teach us about how we can work better and how we can create a future of work that is, I think, really optimistic and promising and good for people. So that's why I wrote it. And I'm really interested to hear you take that approach, particularly given where you're joining us from. When I first started working on this project, and I talked to people about this in Silicon Valley, what I realized very quickly was that in Silicon Valley, you can, you can question everything except the notion that overwork is self-evidently a good thing and what you need to do in order to become a success, right? You can, you can talk about time travel. You can talk about products that attract 2 billion customers in their first year, satellite networks in space providing free internet for everyone. This is just like the trivial stuff that you think about over lunch. But going to a 30-hour work week was like, I might as well have been talking about witchcraft. These days... I think that there is still a certain amount of reflexive resistance to the idea in the Valley, but just as, the, just as is the case everywhere else, I think we've gone in the last year from an initial reaction of complete skepticism to a position of at least cautious interest, right? Most people no longer regard a shorter work week as something that is impossible, but rather as something that is interesting, maybe challenging. And they are open to hearing the evidence for why, why it can work in their industry and why it can just work in the modern world, period. So I think that's a, that's a positive shift, even if it's happening more slowly here in the Valley. Yeah. And, and have you seen that shift accelerate over the past six months? What I certainly have seen is, I think, a greater acceptance of the idea that the future of work is going to be really different from the present, that one of the, one of the few upsides of the pandemic is that it has really shaken up our assumptions about what changes are possible to make in the workplace, right? You know, I know plenty of people who a year ago would have said, remote work is the hill I will die on. My company can never do this. And their employees proved them wrong in the span of you know, sometimes a couple of weeks. And so I think that the, you know, one of the, the positive takeaways of the pandemic is that maybe we should not be quite so quick to assume that big changes in how we work are impossible. And as part of it, I think that, that this has helped make people more receptive to the idea that shortening the work week is something that is not only feasible, but is actually something that is, you know, is also desirable. Right? The other thing that, that the pandemic has done is laid bare just how much work 
everybody does in order to construct the image of the ideal worker, right? To fill in the gaps between home life and work life, between scheduling work and school and childcare. Pandemic has blown all of that up and I think has sort of given all of us a lesson in just how much energy we were spending doing all of that and raises the question of whether we need to do that in the future or whether we can construct a kind of working world that looks different and does not quite demand all of sort of all of that sustaining sort of labor on everybody's part. Yeah, I mean I think if I think back to something that jumped out at me in the book in those cases where it didn't work, I think one of the observations was the sense that people weren't congregating being the issue in one case the office was described as being like a ghost town and so right. that was the reason I think the, the feeling was actually look that one of the benefits of certain working cultures as the company would see it is that people come together and I think there was right. maybe a sense that on certain days perhaps you lose some of that but of course when we're forced apart suddenly certain norms arise and I think that's certainly the case in businesses I'm seeing here I think the idea that you would be able to work even flexible hours during the day wasn't something which was common before, or is just, mm-hmm. it is just now a necessity. Certainly right. when, during that period of lockdown, when many people like me were having to you know, balance you know, homeschooling with just day-to-day work and squeeze it all in. So it, it, have, you, have you heard from businesses that the openness both to perhaps not necessarily a four-day working week, but shorter days has been more common? Mm-hmm. Certainly, I agree that flexible work has escaped Pandora's box and it's not going back, right? I think that in the future, to jump the gun a little bit in our conversation, employers will, will find it a lot harder to make the argument that, that flexible work should be a carve-out for some people, rather than it should be the norm that's available as an option to or everybody. As for acceptance or openness to the idea of playing around with work time more generally. I do think that there has been an increased willingness to think differently about how schedules ought to work. I think that for the first few months, what I was seeing with the companies that, that I've worked with was just basically you know, a need to try and stay half a step ahead of all of this craziness, right? Very much in kind of reactive mode, figuring out how to just keep the wheels on the bus. Now at this point, for better or worse, we're having to think about, realize that we are not reaching the end of the movie. At best, we're reaching the end of the first season and it's going to be a cliffhanger. So we got to figure out what, what all of us are going to be doing in the future. In some places, that has actually already translated into shortening working hours. There are some companies that, be, that went remote that found, hey, we're actually a lot more productive than we used to be because we are, we've had to figure out how to make meetings shorter and do a bunch of other tech things that we always should have. And people are really stressed. They're not able to get out. They've got all these competing demands. So now in order to help them deal with all this other stuff, let's move to a four-day week and see if that, if that helps make people's lives better. I've seen companies all over the world doing this, sometimes temporarily, as with Shopify, the Canadian e-commerce giant, sometimes permanently. And so I think that is, that's another, another positive indicator that we could be, that an unintended consequence of the pandemic could be a greater acceptance of the idea 
that shortening working hours as a way of dealing with work-life balance issues, et cetera, could be a, a viable thing for more companies in the future. So we talked about meetings there, or you mentioned meetings briefly. Now, one of my pet hates has always been the length of meetings, the organization of meetings. I have for years tried so many different methods of reducing the number and also the duration of meetings with different techniques, whether that be preparing information beforehand, whether that be having you know, stricter agendas. How does meetings come into the efficiencies that companies have gained through reducing the working week? It seems counterintuitive in a sense. It doesn't seem enough time to those, those meetings in a four-day week. Right. So meeting, I think reducing meetings and getting more discipline around them is one of the key things that virtually every company, certainly any company in which meetings are a significant part of the workday or work culture, do in order to win back more time for everybody. I think that the exception would be nursing homes or restaurants where you don't necessarily have a lot of big all-hands meetings normally, the way that you might in in some professional services firms. It's really not rocket science to figure out how to reduce them or um, what you have to do in order to make them more effective, right? And I think that circulating agendas beforehand, thinking a little bit more about who needs to be in the meeting and who doesn't need to be, taking a moment and thinking about whether you actually need a meeting in order to communicate stuff or to make this kind of decision or whether your company can do this virtually is... I think an option that certainly is available to more companies now and thinking about meetings as places in which you make decisions as opposed to places where you mainly just share data is these are all things that I see all of these companies doing that allow them to take what had been a 60 minute all hands meeting and turn it into like a seven minute stand up or a meeting with 12 people become a meeting with five that goes from an hour to 20 minutes. And so that, and I think that the other benefit, it turns out, is a kind of subtler social one, which is, I think like you, a lot of people have the experience of feeling like meetings are this eternal frustration that's impossible to fix, right? We all know meetings are too long, they wander, they're often too unstructured, but being in a place in which you actually do something about them, I think provides everyone with, provides everyone with an early win in your campaign to shorten the workday. It also shows, second, that the power of collective action, right? Everybody needs to participate and cooperate in order to make meetings shorter. And so I think it's a nice demonstration of the power of collective over individual action in winning back more time. And finally, it raises the question, okay, if we can take this thing that, ev that everybody knows should work more effectively and actually make it more effective, what else can we do? Right? What, other what other efficiencies can we unlock that will allow us to do five days worth of work in four. And so for all of those reasons, you know, for the practical, for the kind of cultural and for sort of the, the lessons about the virtue of, of collective action and shifting cultural norms, for all of those reasons, shortening meetings turns out to be a really valuable early thing. And, and the, the businesses that you've studied all around the world, and we, we're not talking about businesses here which accepted a reduction in revenue and profit because they wanted a shorter week. We're actually seeing businesses which 
in almost every case I've read from the book, they mm-hmm. actually exceeded expectations. They grew. There were not just efficiencies, but actually significant innovation and improvements from the way the businesses worked. Right. You know, none of these companies shorten the work week in order to boost revenues. I think they, they're trying to solve other very practical problems, problems with recruitment and retention, issues around work-life balance, founder burnout, or of competitive pressures, things that lots and lots of companies deal with every day. So they're not, they're generally not trying to either A, reinvent capitalism or B, trying to, this isn't like a growth hack revenue expansion type thing. It does, however, turn out to be the case that making your company work more efficiently does, surprise, surprise, sometimes also boost your revenues. And I think that you get that direct effect. You also indirectly get another boost because as I think we all know, people who are happier, who are better rested, who collaborate better with their colleagues, all become more productive workers. And so whether you're talking about places that have very hard numerical targets like call centers or places where the standards are, are like a lot more, maybe a lot more subjective, across those places, you see these kinds of these kinds of boosts in revenues in or profitability that turn out to be a really great basically a really great side effect of a shorter work week reimagining capitalism is that something that people have thrown at you <laughs> <laughs> right what i've seen is nobody starts a four day week talking about reinventing capitalism or like rethinking the nature of time in the era of global neoliberalism or what have you. But some of them do actually get there, right? I think that certainly plenty of companies and leaders come to think differently about how to value time, about how to spend it. They think differently about compensation or the relative value of income and salary versus another day to yourself. Some of them do connect a shorter work week to potential improvements in environmental benefit, lower carbon footprint, et cetera. And there are some studies that indicate that you do get those kinds of gains and that they would be non-trivial were they, you know, were they adopted universally. I've not had a leader say that we decided to go to a four-day work week in order to lower our carbon footprint. It's another one of those second-order benefits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But however, I do think that once you start doing this, it does almost inevitably lead you to start questioning a whole bunch of assumptions that you've had about the place of work in your life, how you spend your time, how much you should value money or certain kinds of success versus other metrics of success. And even as your profits go up, it's almost as if the profits become a less important measure for you. I'm not exactly sure what to do with that, with that paradox, but you know, there it is. I was drawn to this idea because of the more practical gains, certainly in times of the time you can spend in flow, for example, the removal of distractions, the introduction of focused work. I see that so clearly and I saw that so clearly when I started removing myself from the office I started forcing myself into situations where I could take away the distraction and realize those benefits so of course it seems a radical notion 
only work four days, but it's the those byproducts, the, the ways in which it forces you to work. I can completely see that how that can have improvements um, in productivity, but the it's about creativity and being able to think in a very different way to the, the way which we've become almost indoctrinated into thinking, which we have to be in an open plan office environment with a constant interruption. How does flow, from your research, how does that play into the ways in which people design their time? Right. Okay. I think first off that in virtually, virtually all kinds of work, flow is something that we can achieve and is something from which we will benefit both personally and in, and in terms of our enhanced creativity. It's not just programmers or designers who, 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 who benefit from this. It's also mechanics or people, people working in call centers. And whether they do so explicitly or not, companies will do things in the way that they design their days to create more time for flow. The best example of this is a or of company a design firm in Norwich called Flock. And they actually have their six-hour day divided into periods of what they call red time, which is like heads down, focus time. Nobody has to answer the phone. You don't have to talk to other people. You're not supposed to interrupt everybody else. Amber time where you hold meetings, you talk to clients clients, you do brainstorming, and then green time, which is social. And the benefit of that is that, first of all, it means that you don't have to escape to the cafe or somewhere else in order to be able to concentrate. It is bonkers that we have designed workplaces that are essentially amplifiers of distraction that throw up impediments to our ability to be productive right? This is completely backwards. And one of the things that you do when you move to a four-day week is, is, not only, is, number one, thinking about how you schedule time so that people are able to, to, to focus. But second, thinking about the kind of social norms that you have in the office around attention, respect for other people's time, so that everyone can work more effectively. And I think that you know, what we see is, and see is that first of all that people are a lot more productive when they're able to get into get into those flow states for substantial periods of time the fact that you have you've got more concentrated work time but you also when it's when it's well designed also have some social time means that both of those actually are enhanced and then I think also that, as many of us experience, there is a genuine satisfaction to being able to get into that kind of zone when you're working that provides a reward that you know, is, I don't want to sound too like California mystical, but which kind of transcends money or other kinds of value and is, sup- and is supremely rewarding and, yeah. has, and is valuable on its own. Yeah. I completely agree. You, you mentioned the word design a lot. I, I found it really interesting the way you structured the book, adopting the principles of design thinking in the way that you explained how businesses are using the four-day week or the shorter week, shorter working days to redesign the way that they work. What led you to take the design thinking approach to the book? First of all, a number of the people I talked to talked about their efforts using that language. And it really was driven home to me when I was in Korea and spent some time 
with Bong Jin Kim, who's the CEO and founder of their Korea, basic Korea's version of Uber Eats or DoorDash, a company called Wuwa Brothers, which actually was recently sold to a Singaporean conglomerate for something on the order, I think, of about $4 billion. So... Wonderful, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wonderful example of how you can go to a shorter work week and still build a super profitable, attractive company. But Bong Jin actually was a designer, and he talked about uh, in our conversations. He constantly kept coming back to the idea that we were you know, in this company. We are redesigning time. We are designing meetings. We are using the same principles that we use when we are when we're looking at the interface for our apps, when we are thinking about how we reconstruct our schedules. And so it seemed to me that, that, that first of all, when your subjects talk about their stuff, talk about themselves in a certain way, it makes a lot of sense to echo that. But second, I think that the basic idea that you can design your time is a really powerful one. And whether you are a product designer or you're like into the whole Silicon Valley design thinking thing or not, the notion that time is not something that simply passes, it's not, but rather is something that you can gather up and you can use in particular ways for your own benefit, following particular principles. That's a really powerful idea. And I think it's one that if you embrace can do really good things for you. So, so that's why I put it front and center in the book and why I keep talking about it now. Yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense. I've been, I describe the, the work that I do as work-life design and it's the same <laughs> principle. And uh, I completely agree. I think from, from my point of view, the idea of work-life design is about taking control of this relationship between your work and your personal life. And mm-hmm. I, it's been out of our grasp, it seems, for so long, that idea that you can do that. These things have almost, set, they've almost coexisted but lived separately. And I think increasingly, and it's certainly pronounced because of our forced working from home, we have to find a way for them to coexist and, and actually take advantage of the benefits of that. I think there's the phrase work-life integration, which is starting to, starting to proliferate. And I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it certainly seems like a reality. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would argue that we should not underestimate the benefits of having clear boundaries between our work lives and our non-work lives. There is a lot of really good data, whether it's short-term studies of mental recovery from arduous tasks or long-term studies of the health benefits of taking regular vacations that indicate that all point in the same direction, which is that number one, that better, that well, well-defined boundaries are good for you both as a human being, as a biological entity and a psychological one, and also as a worker. And secondly, that in the absence of those kinds of boundaries, work will go from being something that occupies discrete chunks of time to being something that kind of ground, that kind of grinds it into a fine powder and just throws itself over uh, across your entire day. So, and so I think that's, uh, but I mean, I think that the, we keep struggling with language to describe how to, how to make these things that really matter to us work. And I think the fact that we all say, I, we all now say work-life balance with a little bit of regret about that term, but we also still haven't found a better one. 
just, I think, illustrates how challenging it is both to think about this stuff and to solve these problems. But, yeah. you know, this is a dilemma to be managed more than a problem to be solved. Yes. And just returning to the example, so Flock, for example, I, I love that system. But of course, we aren't in the office right now. We're not sat at our desks. Have you seen that businesses are applying those same principles to home working? Are they adapting those social norms which existed in the office to the way that they're working remotely? That's a great question. And the answer is generally, yes, they are. Or they find other ways of reconstructing, redesigning days for remote work that achieve some of those same effects. Certainly the basic idea that you've got time where everyone can be heads down. Like at university when everyone's studying for finals and you're all in the library and no one's talking and everyone's focused, having times like those during the week is something that I see companies do a lot of. Another thing that they will do, you know, once again, is keep try to keep meetings shorter. I think especially after a couple months. Hello. Hello. Oh dear. That was weird. It was weird, yeah. I, I lost internet connection there, which is very strange. And as we were just as we were talking about remote work. <laughs> you know, that is absolutely that absolutely perfect. So we were talking um, about Flock's ideas and uh, social norms around allowing people to um, have heads down time. So mm -hmm. I'm running with that. People have translated that to remote working. Yeah. So I think they have with some adaptations, right? So I think that they have continued the practice of having clear periods of heads down time where everyone can focus together. They've kept meetings short, I think, either in response to or as an effort to prevent against Zoom fatigue. I think the other thing that I'm seeing more are like rituals at the beginning and the end of the day, things that try to bring people into flow, but also at the end of the day, that signal that everyone is now going to turn off their cameras and go back to their regularly scheduled lives. And I think particularly in you know, a period where we're not commuting or where our commute is to go from one side of the couch to the other side of the couch, it's really valuable for people to have some kind of marker that distinguishes work time from non-work time. So, so that's, what I, that's what I see them doing. And I think those, those seem to me to be really good practices that even if you don't work a four-day week, are good, are good to bring into your company and good to, good to try out with, with, with the people you lead. Yeah, I think in the early stages of lockdown, there was a lot of talk about how much commuting time people were saving. Mm -hmm. And a suggestion that might be time you can redirect into your work, as though those two saved hours a day should suddenly become company time. Right. I think maybe this relates more to the, some of the themes in your previous book, which is called Rest, as well as Shorter. But clearly, that doesn't work in terms of longevity and your effectiveness, creativity and everything else. Yeah, there's a century's worth of research that shows that long hours will boost productivity for individuals and organizations for short periods of time, like harvest season or tax season or you know Christmas shopping. But over the long run, sort of chronic overwork turns out to be counterproductive, right? It's bad for individuals. It makes them more likely to burn out. To it increases odds that they'll get sick, 
it even makes it more likely that they will cut ethical corners or cheat or not recognize, not recognize the signals of impending problems as rapidly as they would if they were well-rested. Likewise, it's bad for organizations, companies, or factories that run on overtime for six, after six months are actually often less productive than, than those same companies when they are running at 40 hours a week. And I think that the, the, the challenge that we've got is that it is really easy to assume in today's economy, particularly in a service-dominated one, that the work that we do actually is not particularly like physically taxing or psychologically taxing. And we underestimate just how much energy goes into it and when we do it well and how much we benefit from recovery time. And, and layered on top of that is, is the kind of default assumption that lots of companies still have, which is that any time that's not accounted for by picking up kids or doing other things ought to belong to work. And that if you like your work, if you're passionate about your work, you should always want to do it. That is the way in which you express your affection for your employer or your job. And that makes, and it actually makes about as much sense as thinking that if you love food, you should, you should never stop eating there or if that's that the, the affection and passion do uh, should not automatically translate into sort of doing it for very long periods of time every day. I think there's a, an interesting parallel to the conversation we're just having about flow. If you look at the four stages of flow, you've got this period of focus and struggle, which is the focus time we've already discussed. Then you've got the release, which I suppose is, you know, where you build those social norms into potentially collaborating or just having, you know, social occasion. I read about, which we used to do at my old company, actually, Fika. We used to have Fika time, which is, a, you know, right. essentially, as the English would put it, it's tea time, yeah. cup of tea and a biscuit. Then you have that flow period. You've got the neurochemicals like dopamine, endorphins kicking in. But actually, it's almost as essential in order to be able to do that repeatedly is the recovery period at the end. Exactly. And I think that's, that's the pit people seem to miss out. And actually, I think, as you say, being able to achieve this state of flow over a sustained period of time in your life requires all of those four steps. So I think the rest part is essential. The, the future of work conversation is often framed with this notion that AI is going to come and take our jobs, that automation and machines are going to replace the many of the tasks that we do now. I'd see it slightly differently. We're a long way from general AI. And I think certainly automation can ultimately augment the work that we do as human beings. I think, do you see this movement? And I think it could be considered that a movement towards the shorter working week mm -hmm. as a way of optimizing the way that humans, uh, think and our creativity and ultimately the, the determinant factors that will mean that we can coexist with AI. Interesting. I mean, sir, you could posit one future in which sort of increased efficiency or of the elimination of unnecessary dupli duplicative or of low priority, low value tasks is a prelude to the construction of a workplace or sort of regimes of production that are more automatable, not less. In instead, first of all, the things that I'm seeing, I think, fall more in the category of, of augmentation rather than automation. Companies spend plenty of 
plenty of time and devote plenty of attention to figuring out how to use technologies better in order to do five days worth of work in four, but better in this case does not mean getting rid of humans. It does mean sometimes getting rid of lower value added tasks or things that can be easily automated that free up people then to be to work on more creative stuff, to spend more time with clients or, or what have you. And so in that respect, I think that you know, one of the things that, that the story of these companies helps reveal is that the, the narrative of robots will take our jobs or, or of AI will replace us is actually distracts our attention from sort of who it is who is doing the replacing. Not to sound too Marxist, but fundamentally, these stories about robots taking our jobs are stories about capital taking, taking jobs from workers. Or if the robots are not doing anything on their own, and indeed, you can imagine futures in which you know, that, that play out very differently depending upon who it is who owns the robots, who it is who owns the automation. One of the really interesting things in the software companies that I'm looking at that have moved to four-day weeks, and these are places that previously had done like 60, 70-hour weeks, right? So these kinds of work reductions are like a huge cultural change for them, is that the people who are figuring out how to do this automation stuff, how to automate tasks, are employees themselves. In effect, they own the robots who are taking over sort of portions of their jobs. So and what this tells us is that this kind of automation is not necessarily sort of a route to the replacement of workers, but rather the elimination of boring work. What results are jobs that these people themselves like more because they've been able to craft them to allow them to focus on the stuff that they really like doing to have more time to do the stuff that is really significant versus the stuff that simply needs to be done. And all of these are good things. And so I think from a kind of political economy, future of work standpoint, I think what this tells us is that not only is it possible to use these technologies right now to shorten working hours and make work better for everybody, but this points to a way of designing the relationship between workers, automation, and technology that makes for a better future for workers in which workers themselves have control over the, more control over those processes and thereby create ways of working that are better for themselves, that preserve their jobs, and still also yield improvements that, you know, for capital. So, end of rant. Like it. So, I thought we could talk about advice now, if you don't mind. Now, when you're talking about advice, I am always interested in this idea that, irrespective of how good the advice is that you deliver to other people, it's often difficult to stick to some of the advice yourself. Do you yourself work a four-day week? Um, I do not, but I do, I tend to work more like a four or five hour day. I do the kind of day that I talk about in rest, not the day that I talk, not the week that I talk about in yeah. shorter. Well, that, shorter isn't just about the four 
day week right. although that's the that's a headline isn't it yeah. there's plenty of businesses which are doing it varies but six hours seems to be a kind of common a common amount of time to use so i suppose that from that sense you're following more of that cadence yes so and there are a couple of companies that are doing five hour days so i'm closer to those but the fact that i've got plenty of you know clients sort of either clients or companies that I'm following and people I'm trying to interview who are in Europe and in Asia means that, that, that there were some times when I'm on Skype on Sunday evening talking to someone in Australia or Singapore and it's Monday. So, and I think like everybody, the, you know, my reduce sort of my shorter work week is not, it's not carved in stone. I think overall the hours are shorter but, and I do plenty of things to try and figure out how to keep it that way, but it's not like this hard and fast thing where it's 5.01 and I've turned on Netflix and, and opened a beer. What advice would you give your 20 year old self, whether about the way to work <laughs> or the type of business to join? Right. I suppose, what would I tell my 20 year old self? I think the, actually, the first thing I would say is get up earlier that the, I mean, I was one of those people who in college and graduate school almost never started work before like 10 or 11 at night. And I very much bought into the idea that you had your best ideas at like 3 a.m. during the caffeine, like when the caffeine buzz was wearing off or whatever. And I think that looking back on it, that I was able to, perform despite that. When you're young, there's a lot of stupid stuff you're able to put yourself through that you can't when you're older. But I think that there's the, one of the things that I have learned in the last 10 years is the incredible value of early hours for your productivity. And I think that would have been, that's the first thing I would do. I would advise my younger self. The second would be do more sports. The, there was a fan, I came from I came to college from going into high school in the American South, which in the late seventies and early eighties, like high school sports basically were like studies in state sponsored terrorism with a little bit of like structural racism sprinkled on top. And there was very much the sense that if you were athletic, you were not, you weren't interested in academics and vice versa. And that, and one of the things that I was really struck when writing rest was how wrong that assumption is and how much and how in some times in some cultures it's people took for granted that the opposite was the case like i mean in in cambridge in the 19th century all the most and intellectually ambitious students like the science students like the math people they were all really serious rowers or tennis players particularly because rowing was seen as this as a kind of physical discipline that gave you a that gave you the stamina you needed to do really serious science at a very high level and and my life my younger self would have been quite different if I had that kind of model of how to connect, connect athleticism and academic pursuits. So those are, the, those are the two things I would have advised. And I suppose buy Apple stock when it first came out, just hold on to it. It sounds like our 20s are the same, to be honest. Yeah, pretty so, much. Yeah. So, every, so many of us turn out to have twi- or, you know, 20s that are pretty much the same. Exactly. I love the book. I am 
all up for trying these ideas out but i think the first time i ever suggested to somebody i wouldn't go so far as saying they roll their eyes but they definitely look shocked that this is a serious concept that i'm putting in front of them what are the first steps that a business should take in exploring whether this approach is the right one for them so i think the first thing would be to think about you might think about what things could be existential threats in the next few years right or ones that you see coming down the sort of coming down the coming down the road and then think that you know, people people and companies that move to four day weeks do so in order to make themselves more sustainable places to work, both in terms of energy expenditure, but also places that don't burn people out, right? They do so in order to boost recruitment and retention to be more creative places and to have better work-life balance. And if you face those challenges, or if those are things that could potentially be weak points for you in the future, then I think that, that a shorter work week is something that you should think seriously about. I think also that the fact that there are companies across a wide variety of industries, professional services, manufacturing, places in healthcare, garages, restaurants, places where time is at a premium, where overwork is the norm, sometimes where margins are very thin, where KPIs and objectives are really clearly defined. If those kinds of places are able to move to a four-day week with great benefit, then you might ask yourself, why can't I do it as well? Then if, if the leadership is on board with it, then I think the next thing to do is to talk to your people, get everyone on board, and really set up a process that turns over to them the work of figuring out how to make it work. Not every company has someone at the top who champions this, but the actual work of figuring out how to make it work happens from the bottom up. No company knows everyone's job well enough to say how it should be redesigned. People have to figure this out for themselves. And not only does devolving to them the responsibility for it mean that you're going to make use of their skill, but thereby get a redesigned workday that, that actually is functional versus one that is aspirational. But you're also going to make workers happier. They're going to be better and they're going to be more invested in the success of this enterprise. And they are, they're going to learn things that will make them even better workers and more productive. So those are the first steps to take. And then past that, there's plenty more stuff in the book to help guide you through what you do after that. Indeed, that's uh, Shorter by Alex Sujung Kimpang. Alex, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Ollie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that was my interview with Alex Sujung Kimpang. Lots of ideas there, some of which I think we can implement straight away, some of which might take a little while, but I think all in all, loads of food for thought. I certainly think that we need to change our perception about how we manage our time at work, and it's even more pronounced now. So in the next episode, I'm going to be speaking to Ben Legg, who's the CEO of the Portfolio Collective, former COO of Google in Europe, and we're going to talk about a concept which is becoming more and more prevalent nowadays and it's a portfolio career having multiple strands to your career so 
Make sure you're subscribed to receive that episode in your podcast inbox shortly and tune in for future episodes too. Until then, thanks very much.